Hey there, bad scientists, and thanks for listening. Ethan here, of course. I wanted to talk about Gene Wilder for a second before this Young Frankenstein episode. Uh, He is the late, great genius writer and actor in this movie, and instead of me talking about him, I took some excerpts from an exclusive interview that he did with Merv Griffin, where they closed the set. Gene agreed to do the interview only if they close the set. And so here's just a couple clips from the man himself, and I hope you enjoy the episode. See you on the other side. My mother um, got a heart attack when I was six years old, and the doctor told us that we should try to keep her happy and not get her too excited and, uh, because she could die just like that. So I don't know why, I don't know what insanities take place in the minds of comic actors, of comedians, of artists in general, But whatever it was stirring inside me, it got veered off towards trying to make her laugh. That's how I dealt with the pain I was feeling of not being able to fix her cracked heart. She had a cracked and enlarged heart. What can I do? I was six years old, so I tried to make her laugh. My criterion for what was really going over big is if she had, I don't know if you can say this on TV, I'll take a chance, if she peed in her pants. If a little pee-pee came, I knew that I was going over big. And she would laugh so much, then she'd she'd say, Jerry, because that was my name in those days. Now look what you've made me do, and she'd run off to the bathroom. You have little philosophies? Yes. That you impart to? I have, um, as a matter of fact, I do. One of them is, um, be very careful, be very careful what you want, because you might get it. And I really believe in that a lot. Well, I you go, you, well, you think all the time, if only I had, and then you say, what, money? Is that it? Mm-hmm. If only I were a movie star. If only I could get that girl. If only I could live in that house. You should be very careful what things you set your heart on, uh, meaning if you had that, then happiness would come. Well, you may get that and find that that's not where the happiness lies. Bad science. Did the movie get it right? Science, or will we have to fight? Bad, 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 bad Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bad Science. I'm your host, Ethan Edinburgh. This is the show where we discuss and analyze the science of a film with a comedian and a scientist. And today we are talking about a classic film, Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks's amazing horror comedy with Gene Wilder. It's an unbelievable movie. I'm so glad that we're talking about it today. And I have some incredible guests to help me along the way. First of all, we have the hosts, that's right, two comedic guests of the Sex Talk With My Mom podcast, Cam and Karen Lee Potter. How's it going? It's going quite well. We're very excited to talk about this movie. Yes, all-time favorite movie. Yeah, before we get to our next guest, what makes the movie so special to you guys? I think every character in this film is just such a brilliant clown. (laughs) That it, I I couldn't I it, I watched this alone. I'm sitting very lonely in my bed, and I was laughing out loud. And it's very unusual for me to do that. Yeah. And for me, I'm 61 years old, and when this came out, I remember it, it was I, one of those go-to cult films that we just watched over and over again. My husband at the time um, was as into it as I was, so it has some like some sentimental value because of that. And you know, Blazing Saddles and any of the Mel Brooks movies. Absolutely. Um, It's definitely up there with some of his best, I would say. And to get the proper psychological perspective on this film, we have another great guest. (laughs) He is the Assistant Dean in the College of Arts and Sciences and Lecturer in Psychological and Brain Sciences, Dr. Tim Bono. Hi there. It's great to be with you today. 
Yes, great to have you too. Um, oh, and sorry, you're you're at the Washington University in St. Louis. Is that correct? That's correct. So you're currently in St. Louis. Currently coming to you live from my apartment in St. Louis. That's right. Man, this is a really uh, cross country venture here. This is so my first cool. podcast <laughs> recording from Houston. I'm usually in LA. Where are you, Cam and Karen Lee? Well, Karen Lee's in Hollywood. Oh. And I'm also in LA. Oh, great. So yeah, we're really we're really covering pretty much everywhere. So Doc, what was your first experience with the film. How do you feel about it? So I actually saw the film just for the first time this past weekend after you all sent me the link Whoa, so I could no take way. a look at it. Wow. Um, and I realized that I had actually seen uh, the stage version a couple years ago. This was a show oh. that was produced on Broadway. Yeah. Um, and there's a pretty active theater scene here in St. Louis. And we have a large outdoor theater called the, the Muni. I think it's actually the largest outdoor theater in the country. It has like 11,000 seats. And a couple years ago, they produced this. So early on, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the same show that I saw. And so it was very interesting um, to kind of see the, the original version of this. I will admit that as soon as I saw Gene Wilder, my mind immediately went to the other cult classic of his, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> and so I couldn't disentangle that in my mind. Um, but it was certainly interesting to see him in this new character, or for me, what was it, a new character as Dr. Frankenstein, who is really <laughs> Frankenstein. And I think that whole issue of identity has a lot to say about how, you know, as people are sort of coming of age, very often they try to distance themselves from some part of their past. Um, lo and behold, it can be something that truly they've been almost repressing that they can't really separate. And sure enough, you put him in the correct context. And he's doing exactly the behavior that he w promised himself that he would not ever have any part in. Yeah. Whoa, you're right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> classic uh, classic mix-em-up, classic 180. Yeah, where it's a question, was it ever a 180 or was it that was always truly him, but he was putting on this facade so that he wouldn't have to come to terms with the fact that this was truly his identity and perhaps what he, what he was even, quote, called to do his whole life. Yeah. Wow. I mean, do you think that that's a common thing for all of us that we, you know, because there's kind of like that classic tale that, you know, our parents want us to do something. And so we fight against it in our rebellious years. And then at some point, we realize like, no, that's really what I want to do. Or that's what I'm actually really good at and how I can change the world. And so now I'm going to throw myself into it. Absolutely. And you know, as a faculty member at a, at a college, I see this all the time where that's, I think, one of the characteristics of emerging adulthood. You know, we know that across the lifespan, one of the key predictors of psychological health and well-being is a sense of autonomy, a sense that we are free agents and that we are able to do things according to our own desires, not because we're getting pressure from anybody else. And so very often you see that when people are sort of coming of age, even if they have an inkling in one particular area, if it could even give the appearance that they're doing this because there's pressure from mom and dad or because society would expect someone of my background or my skill set to pursue this particular path, well, then maybe I'm not going to do that just so that I can declare to the world, hey, I'm a free agent. I'm, you know, I'm going out there according to what I want to do, not because anybody's telling me to do this. When in fact, well, maybe that other path, though, really is the thing that is going to give you the most purpose and, and meaning independent of whether it's because others expect you to or because mom and dad want you to be doing that. Hmm. I have a follow-up question for Tim here. Before the call, we, we were discussing your last name. Oh, yes. And <laughs> it's B-O-N-O. -O, and Ethan was like, is it Bono or is it Bono? And you informed us that it is, in fact, Dr. Bono. 
would you is this the same name that your parents use or are you also going through a similar <laughs> well you know um so yes I, I can tell you that that my last name is pronounced the same as my parents the same as my grandparents etc but that's that is actually an interesting observation because you do see that come up and that would exactly fit with what some people do where they make subtle changes to some aspect of their name or their religious affiliation or, or their politics not even because they necessarily care about those particular ideals that are aligned with that mindset, but just as a way to say, nobody's going to tell me what to think or how to live my life. I'm going to vote for this person or, or subscribe to this political ideology just as a way to sort of declare to those around me, I'm autonomous. You can't take that away from me. I make my own decisions. I'm not going to be influenced by other people. And I think that that really ends up driving a lot of behaviors and a lot of decisions that aren't really even the best decision for somebody to make, but it speaks to the power of autonomy and how important that is as a, as a driver of well-being. Man, I got to say, you really cut to the core of me personally, because my parents or, or cousins, of, if you ask them what our last name is, it's Edinburgh, but I say Edinburgh. And I always Ooh. thought I was kind of doing the family lineage justice because I think it originated from that city, Edinburgh. And so I'm, I'm like, oh, that's, a you know, this is how it should be pronounced. I'm not just going to pronounce it the way that it's easier, you know, the Americanized version. But it also could be that I'm just a rebellious prick and I'm trying to step out and like be cool. <laughs> wow, that is awesome. <laughs> um, okay, so wait, before we keep going, you, uh, Tim, are, are kind of known as a happiness expert. You teach positive psychology. You have a book called Happiness 101. So uh, I, I want to ask you about that. But I, I first want to ask you because I was doing some probably unnecessary research this morning. I think I know what you're about to ask, but go ahead. <laughs> I saw a clip of you on The Price is Right. And boy, were you happy. You were extremely... <laughs> that thing is going to follow me for the rest of my life. <laughs> it was awesome. It made me feel good. I was on a date with somebody last fall, and the first thing that person said was, I did, I Google stalked you a little, and you were on the prices right. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Like, there's so many other things. I spent all these years in graduate school. I, I have publications. In fact, I did a talk last year at the Washington University Medical School. It's one of the top medical centers in the country with like renowned faculty, and it was for the Department of Anesthesiology. Now, Grand Rounds for Anesthesiology starts at 6.45 a.m. because all those people have to do surgery starting at like 8 a.m. So at 6.45 mm -hmm. in the morning, everybody's half asleep and they're doing my introduction. They're reading my, my CV, talking about my publications, my academic credentials. But the person who's doing this was like, he was like, like 26 or something. He was like a recent um, MD. And he says, but the most important credential of all, Dr. Bono, <laughs> is that I Google stalked him. And sure enough, last, last spring, he was on The Price is Right. So without further ado, Timothy Bono, <laughs> come on down. And then he, he played the theme to The Price is Right from his phone. Oh, and oh that's down. hilarious. Come but on, I, you loved it. You loved it. You know, I, I will say it did break the ice. Yeah. And, it, and it's kind of set the tone for a really fun conversation. But yes, you wouldn't know it from that clip, but I'm actually an incredibly introverted person as an academic, but I'm also very good at following instructions. And um, when I was a little kid, my favorite TV show was always The Price is Right. And I always told myself that if ever I got out to LA, I was going to try to be on The Price is Right. They only take on certain days of the month. It just so happens I was out there just over a year ago for a conference. And the morning of the opening session was clear on my calendar. So I got tickets, had some buddies. We went down there. 
And I think the eight-year-old inside of me was just so excited while I was waiting in line that, you know, I get called down and the producer would, would come over to us at commercial breaks. And he kept saying, now you all got chosen for this for a reason. So if you, you know, have the, the, the winning bid to get up on stage, you know, don't hold back. You can you jump up and down, be as excited as possible. And he even said, you can do whatever you want to Drew Carey. You can pick him up. You oh my God, it's dangerous. <laughs> Go crazy and be memorable. And so again, it's not really in my nature to do those things, but I was just in a state of delirium, got on stage and as we you saw what happened with jumping up and down, hug Drew, the whole thing. So yeah, that was yeah. a moment of happiness for me. Did you win a washer and dryer? We all want to know. <laughs> no, I did not win it, but I did end up winning two trips to Albuquerque and Memphis. Now I was able to go to Albuquerque, but the Memphis trip was scheduled for April. And so obviously there was no travel that would be taking place there, but it was a really fun oh. um, little adventure uh, for sure. What a shame. I've heard Drew telling you like, oh, you're really going to enjoy that Tennessee trip. I know. That's a, yeah. <laughs> so we'll see if I can take it in the future if this COVID stuff slows down, but um, at least the Albuquerque trip was a lot of fun. Nice. Okay. And it also, it did make me a little nostalgic for pre-COVID times when you went up and hugged Drew Carey and I was like, oh, yeah. better, better <laughs> times, better times. These days, most we do an, an elbow bump or something like that. Yeah, a bow, a nice, uh, a nice friendly bow, an excited bow. So yeah, I mean, before we, we get into the movie, because I do have a lot of questions about the film, but yeah, what's, what's this book all about, Happiness 101? And because, you know, I'm sure especially nowadays, we're all going through these ridiculous, quite apocalyptic times. So do you have advice for people or just like tips to how to keep their mental state clear a little bit or, or, or just upbeat maybe? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people have been posing that question to me because you know, we're living in really challenging times right now between the virus and the way that that's making people sick. It's canceling our summer plans and it's causing all sorts of, of difficulties day to day. Um, but then also we're living in this time of protests and demonstrations and injustices that we're having to, to grapple with. Yeah. And so a lot of people are turning to me saying, all right, happiness guy, what are we supposed to do about this right now? <laughs> and what I can tell you is that you know, I, I teach this course in positive psychology every spring at Washington University and colleges across the country. It turns out to be a really popular class because I think people are interested in understanding what are the predictors of happiness and what have the behavioral sciences come to understand this. And so I, I've been teaching this class since 2012. And what I tell the students on the first day of class, I say, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there about the nature of happiness and its pursuit. The first one is that everybody thinks that um, that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And a lot of people think that um, if you're not happy, something must be wrong with you. And so you better change something about your life so that you can sort of enter this state of perpetual bliss. But any psychologist will tell you that if you were happy all the time, that would be the indication that something were wrong with you. Because we have evolved this incredibly complex set of emotions for a reason. And each of them has a time and a place. Um, and, and it's a natural, healthy response to feel anxious or sad or angry when things are not going well for us. Um, so part of psychological health involves understanding, number one, that, that, that uh, you know, inevitably we experience ups and downs. Um, anxiety and sadness are natural in response to things that are going on like they are right now. And the other characteristic of psychological health then is having strategies that allow us to cope um, and, and have that resilience to persevere through that difficulty. Researchers have gone to all corners of the world and really identified only two kinds of people who never get sad, anxious, or upset. Those two kinds of people are sociopaths and the dead, but everybody else, 
This is to say that all psychologically healthy people are going to experience sadness and anxiety and the happiest people seem to understand that. And then the other thing that that I mentioned, which I'll just say very quickly here, um, that I tell the students is that, you know, our goal really should not to try to be happy, but instead to be happier. Because a lot of people say, gosh, I just want to be happy. Or what do I need to do to be happy? What job should I have to be happy? How much money do I need to earn to be happy? And that kind of suggests that happiness is this binary, you know, that happiness is this point on the horizon. And as soon as I get the right job and the right money and live in the right house and drive the right car, then I'll be happy. Whereas right before I had those things, I was unhappy and life was bad. Much better, I think, is to ask ourselves, how can I be happier? Because there's always going to be stuff outside of our control that places a limit on how happy we could be. But there usually also are are things that are behaviors and mindsets that we can control, that we can incorporate into our lives to become happier. And that's what the entire course is all about. It's not about being, quote, happy. It's about let's take a look at what psychology and other scientific fields have come to understand about the most effective ways to become happier in our day-to-day lives. And so we cover things like gratitude and physical activity and meditation and pro-social behavior. Social connection is a huge one. Um, and so I've been teaching that class for about eight years. And a couple of years ago, um, I essentially took all the research and the book, Happiness 101, very closely follows the format of the class. Each chapter of the book essentially is a week in the class in terms of both the research that we cover, but also the stories that students have shared with me over the years about how they've translated that research and put it into practice in their own lives. And so you follow the stories of about 80 students who have provided quotes about, you know, here's an actual way that I I started to meditate and ran into these difficulties, but then I did this. And then that seemed to work for me to increase my overall happiness. So it's so the book is essentially the class in book form. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate that you made chapter four all about just me and my work and that people can just um, <laughs> keep tabs on me and that'll make them happy. I thought that was really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I might have to take a closer look at that and see what those hidden meanings had to say with them. But sure, why not? I think chapter four may have been about sleep, actually. So... Um, oh, that's weird. I paid your editor specifically to put that in. That's really strange. Um, okay, so I have some quotes here from the film that I wanted to just run by you and you let me know, you know, if it makes sense or if, if anything comes to mind, I guess. So one thing that Frederick says, he says, once a nerve fiber is severed, there is no way in heaven or on earth to regenerate life back into it. So I was doing some research on that and I found that there has been some success in in regenerating uh, nerve fibers in rats, do you do you know about that? Yeah. So when when I heard that, also, you know, um, and I, I'm trying to think when this movie came out, like in the 1970s, I think. Yeah, 74, I believe. At the time, that's probably what science had us understand, because for a long time um, we didn't know very much about the brain. There's still more that we don't know than what we do know about the brain. But we used to think that the brain was something that was developing during childhood and adolescence. But even the smartest minds in the world thought that by age 20 or 25, we had sort of achieved our adult brain. And there was this idea of synaptic pruning, which was this idea that the parts of the brain that you weren't exercising, those neurons would sort of die off. And then that was the end of the story. And that's what we believed until somewhere in the 1990s when scientists were doing studies and came to understand that that's not the end of the story, that actually our brains continue to change and develop over the course of our entire lives. And um, they introduced this idea of neuroplasticity or neurogenesis, which is the idea that 
Um, neurons can grow and develop when there previously had not been established neural channels. And that completely revolutionized our understanding both of the brain, but also of behavior. I mean, as an analog, that's part of the reason why, if you look at the history of psychology, we didn't study happiness for like the first hundred years that psychology was a field because people thought, well, what's the point in, st in, in studying something like that? You, you can't even change it. You're sort of, you know, you come into the world, some people have a cheery disposition, some people are more pessimistic, and that's the end of the road. And then we got these discoveries in the 90s from um, these neuroscientists doing the study showing, hey, guess what? It turns out we were wrong. The brain can change. And then that positioned all these people to come forward and say, well, let's see what happens if we get people meditating. Let's see what happens if we get people entering things in gratitude journals. And sure enough, the parts of the brain that correspond with happiness and well-being actually became larger. There was more brain tissue dedicated to those regions that governed those experiences. And so, yeah, in the 1970s, yeah, that was the conclusion that once those nerve fibers were dead, that was the end of the story. But now we have evidence um, to show that that's not true. The, the original studies, I'll describe this just very quickly, were actually done with taxi drivers in London. Because if you've seen a map of London, it's, a, it's very circuitous, very complicated. And they took these middle-aged individuals who were in their training to become cabbies. They did brain scans of them before they did their training. And then a couple months into their training, and they found that the region of the brain that stores memory and spatial relationships, which is the hippocampus, that actually became larger over the course of their training, which was telling us, well, yeah, if you're exercising that part of the brain that is necessary for figuring out how to remember all these different streets and pathways, then there's more brain tissue that is dedicated um, to that, that part of the brain. They follow that up with people who, who play the violin, you know, because they have to use the fingers of the left hand more than the fingers of the right hand. The brain regions that, that govern the fingers of the left hand became larger. So now just over the, 20, uh, over the last 20 or 25 years, we now have evidence that the brain can change based on the behaviors that we incorporate into our lives. Wow. Oh, wow. What I find interesting is that people say, scientists have said that your brain doesn't fully develop till you're 25. And a lot of decisions are made before you're 25 about your whole life. For example, myself who got married at uh, 23. So is that true? The brain is, doesn't fully form until you're 25 years old? Well, you know, there's an interesting um, gender difference. Now, there's a lot of variability even within genders, but um, there's evidence that among women that the brain likely has developed by, you know, the early 20s. But for men, it's a little closer to 25, 26. And for that some makes people, total sense um, to me. But a part <laughs> of it is that the, the brain structure that is the last to develop, and this is both for men and for women, is called the prefrontal cortex. That is the part right behind the, the forehead. And that is what is responsible for impulse control and abstract thinking and general processes that are sort of higher order thinking. And that's the reason, I mean, I work on a college campus, talk to our dean of students. He will have many examples of young men who have made poor decisions. And you say, well, yeah, their prefrontal cortex that would get, otherwise give them the ability to make good decisions that has not fully formed yet. And that's why you often will see that, you know, there are way more guys who get in trouble in the, the teenage years than, than women. And part of the reason, and there are many other reasons, but part of it is that it takes a little bit longer for a young man's brain tissue to develop in that region that governs that impulse control. Wow. And is that neural uh, plasticity? Because you were talking about how our brains can still develop in different ways with the violinist and the cab drivers and stuff. So 
is that referring to how we can still kind of manipulate our brains or change, evolve uh, different sections of our brains? Absolutely. I mean, there's evidence for this even in older adults that there doesn't seem to be a point at which the brain stops changing. Now, it, it is much more malleable in, in early life. So, for example, mm. you know, if you took a 10-year-old and a 70-year-old and they both tried to learn French for the first time, the 10-year-old is going to have an easier time because, well, part of it is because there's less interference and less other stuff going on in the mind. But also, the brain is just much more plastic at a younger age than an older age. But nonetheless, the brain still can change. It just takes a little bit more effort. But you can still see that neurogenesis happening and that neuroplasticity even in older adulthood. And in fact, depends also how much weed you're smoking. <laughs> that probably plays this, a role. This is what I found. <laughs> There have been studies with that actually on human memory that that people have an easier time remembering things if they if they are asked to recall information in a setting that is consistent with where they encoded or learned the information. And they did that study in the 70s where they brought people, you know, this is the 70s when you could do research like that. Yeah, we're going to bring people into a lab. Everybody's going to get high and then we're going to give them a word test at the end of this. But sure enough, if people had been smoking weed while they learned the words, they had an easier time remembering it if they if they were smoking weed while they were doing the test. So that's it, Cam. Don't complain about me smoking weed anymore. I'll just have to continually say hi at all times. Yeah. It's in the name of science. That's right. Oh, great. Wonderful. Because you started, you can't stop now, scientifically. You have to keep going to retain the information. That's it. And watching young Frankenstein when you're high is the best. <laughs> were you high while you were watching this, Mom? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> which, which time? Uh, Tim, were you high while you were watching this? Um, no, I can't say that I was. I think I was actually doing dishes or something. I had a friend over and I was like <laughs> making dinner or something. So, so I guess maybe, maybe, you know, it becomes a cult classic. Maybe I, I need to get high the next time I watch it and we'll see what oh, that does. You totally do. It is so funny. <laughs> I actually wanted to ask about memory and retaining attention and stuff like that because I'm fascinated with those subjects. We've talked about it several times on the podcast, but I came upon a new fact, at least to me, or maybe it's something I've learned before and straight up don't remember because I was high when I read it and now I'm not. Oh, but I'm, I, got a, I got a friend. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, but uh, currently on a break, so I should be sharper technically today. I don't know. Maybe that's... <laughs> we're we're going to find out. Uh, let me know. Uh, write us on Instagram. So I was reading that, like, for example, yesterday I got uh, a bit of a headache. Like I said, I'm in Houston now. I'm kind of like new here. It's like way more humid than LA. And I was walking around outside. It was hot. I think that I got this headache because I didn't drink enough water. So I started reading about dehydration and I read that the brain is 73% water and that with just like a small amount of dehydration, you can very quickly start to affect your memory and your attention and stuff like that. So can you speak on that? Is that true? So I, I know a little bit less than, uh, about that specifically. I mean, there certainly is evidence that, that the brain needs to be fueled. And, you know, having good nutrition is an important way to sort of give the brain power that's necessary for us to execute our daily tasks. And there are studies actually that have shown, looking specifically at married couples, that the likelihood that they are able to have good memory and good cognition and also resolve conflicts amicably. And they've, they've done this by showing that, that if you ask a couple who's in the midst of some dispute um, to discuss it while they both have low blood sugar, which would say that they are likely de dehydrated or they haven't had enough to eat, um, that there's just a lot more hostility that's taking place. It's essentially the first experimental evidence that we have for the concept of being hangry. That's a real thing yep. that if we are hungry, again, we don't have enough fuel to the brain 
that is allowing us to override those impulses. I mean, it's going back to that idea of what's happening in the prefrontal cortex. So yeah, it very likely is the case that um, that if, if we don't have enough food and, and water, um, then that's going to compromise the brain's ability to make those neural connections to carry out whatever tasks we need to. A hundred percent. And my mother knew this because my dad would come home from work as a, as a, as a physician and we were not allowed to speak at the dinner table until he ate his dinner. That's smart. Otherwise, it, yeah, that was smart, right? So my mother knew this stuff. This is when you're the wife of the doctor, you know more than the actual doctor. <laughs> yeah. And Cam and I, when we do our podcast, it's the same thing. What, what does we that all, mean? We know when the... Well, when we know that when there was a, like a little blood sugar problem going on, that we're going to be not in the same mood as when, you know, it's like the first thing in the morning after we had our coffee and a breakfast. And Is everything. that my blood sugar or your blood sugar that you're talking about? That's your blood sugar. You're a little, you're a little hangry. <laughs> oh, I get hangry. She, he gets totally I, hangry. I hope everybody ate before this. <laughs> no, we, we are, we're, we're going strong right now. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go back to the show about science. Similarly to what I was saying with the dehydration, I read that the brain is the most fatty organ in the body, which I had no idea about, and that we actually need cholesterol, that it helps our brain cells, and that we need omega-3 fatty acids, that those are also really important. So I don't know. I just didn't know that the brain was so sensitive to these things. Yeah, well, certainly there's there's good cholesterol and there's bad cholesterol. So it's not to say to go out and eat a bunch of Krispy Kreme donuts every day, because that's going to increase Shit. your... I know. So if that's been your, your routine for happiness... I can recommend, you know, go for a nice run, go meditate. Those, those things are like a fat-free way to increase your happiness. But yeah, we do need um, a certain amount of, of fat and cholesterol to sort of keep the body lubricated, essentially. Um, and that's where it's important to pay attention, not just to whether there's fat or not, but what kind of fat. So the fat that you get from olive oil or from an avocado is going to be much better than what you're getting from like a Snickers bar or fried foods or other things like that. So in the in the movie though the brain is abnormal. I was curious about that as well. Like, if it, it, can, is it possible to actually preserve those brains in formaldehyde. formaldehyde or whatever that is? So that I really don't know anything about. I, it doesn't seem to me that you could. I mean, the whole idea of a brain transplant just doesn't seem possible because the the brain is ultimately connected to the spinal cord, and once you have severed that. Um, I, you know, I, I'm pretty sure that the brain sort of loses its, its function. So it's not like, you know, um, a tooth or a limb or something where you can like just sew it back on. Um, I, I think that once you, especially if you've severed the, the brain at the area that is connected to those basic life functions, um, once those are damaged, I, I don't know that those can regenerate in the same way that the, the sort of top level of the brain that's, you know, allowing you to be a taxi driver or, or play the violin. I mean, that's really the part that seems to be able to um, regrow depending on behavior. But, you know, the, the other parts that are sort of buried underneath you know, in the, the deep levels of the brain. Once those are damaged, I think that that's kind of the end of the story. What about the fact that the, the penis was the only thing that was <laughs> at the end? No spoiler alert, right. but I did. I'm going to spoil the movie by saying that everything got transferred over at the end, except for the dick. Yeah. Well, you know, as someone who studies the science of happiness, you'd think I, I would maybe know more about the sex organs, but I also don't know much about that either. Maybe I need to do a little bit more research. Well, ask Cam, because he and I have become experts over the last five years. Cam, you know more about this than anybody. Yeah, I think that when you do uh, replace your brain with someone else's brain, you're, you get their dick in return, uh, which you saw in this <laughs> yeah, movie. Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. And it, 
It's like when companies offer free shipping. It just it comes with. It. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <absolutely>. Exactly. <laughs> Which is why I plan to do another uh, another brain transplant quite quite soon. <laughs> I can have that scheduled. Thank you. Um, piggybacking on the the brain swapping, isn't there evidence though of brains being turned off and then turned back on? Like I read a couple articles about people that had like hypothermia, but it actually ended up saving their lives. Like they were dead for a bit, and then they were able to be brought back. Like an induced comas type of thing. Yeah, I guess it depends how you're defining um, dead. And yeah, I've heard of that as well. Um, We know that the brain is highly specialized. So it's not just this general function box, you know, is essentially what will happen during like a a surgery or or other procedures where, you know, they are administering some intervention that locks one part of the brain so that you're not experiencing pain or that you otherwise wouldn't be reacting in a particular way. And in, in that way, I mean, that's, um, what what some procedures have done. So, so for example, for people who um, suffer from severe depression, they have these procedures now where they will actually implant electrodes into the brain um, and they're trying to stimulate a very specific region that they're either turning on or turning off. And it's really remarkable when you watch them do this because when they're doing these procedures, they have to keep the patient awake because the brain is so sensitive that you have to make sure that you're implanting that electrode in exactly the right place because one millimeter in the wrong direction, you might be activating a completely set other set of of, of reactions or bodily functions. Um, So they're doing this and they're literally poking and prodding. How do you feel? How do you feel? And when they get the right area, they're essentially able to turn that on. And then that, just like they've hit a a light switch, they suddenly feel better. So for like Parkinson's disease too, they use those kind of... They've done that too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about laughter? Because, well, Cam and I, before this whole um, discussion we're talking about, we were both watching, I was watching some bloopers from the movie, and I kept watching the same scene over and over again when um, Igor is looking at these, uh, and uh, Gene Wilder's character says, can you get the bags? And he's like, I got two old bags here. And then he starts, like, practically mauling Madeline Kahn's uh, fur, like like a fake silver fox, and he starts, like, biting it. And I kept Mm -hmm. watching this there must have been like six or seven bloopers of it. And I could not stop laughing. And it felt so good. That laughter like is like the best high ever. And, and I think that like if we if we used laughter more, we, we'd probably make a lot of people a lot more happy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because, you know, we know that laughter kind of releases a lot of the neurotransmitters that are, are natural ways to boost our, our, our well-being. Um, yeah, and exactly why we laugh is sort of a, um, a question that psychologists and anthropologists and many others have tried to really understand why. But, you know, what seems to trigger the laugh is that it's something unexpected, that there's some connection that somebody else has drawn in a way that we weren't expecting. And that seems to be almost like a reflex to give um, attention to this fact that, wait a second, I thought that this was going to go in this direction or, oh, they're tying it to something else. Um, and that's just sort of this inborn reaction that we seem to have that that truly is inborn that even young children, you know, will start laughing. You see these YouTube videos of kids laughing in response to somebody ripping up paper or to something, some other scene. They haven't established language. And yet, in all cultures, laughter is something that emerges very early. But it's different, though. Like Cam and I have different senses of what's funny. Like Cam's a clown. So you like Cam, you can tell him about your love of clowning as opposed to like my my sense of humor is different. I don't know if it's that different. I, I will say that in high school, I competed at, in like this like speech and debate, very nerdy club. And we would act out these uh, like humorous scenes. And I, my scene that I chose was actually from Young Frankenstein because it, it resonated so strongly. There is something about the, the physicality of 
and the stupidity of a lot of these, these <laughs> jokes that just gets me so good. The eyes alone, just the, the physicality, like you said, those those big eyes that Igor has, you can't look at him and not just laugh. Just looking at him is so funny. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, Gene Wilder's performance is also just, even when he's not saying anything that's funny, but he's so, maybe it's because he's so serious about it. Like sometimes he's giving those, you know, <laughs> kind of mad scientist monologues and just his facial expressions and that he's like yelling so much. Yes. It's hysterical. Yeah, what totally is it, it when someone yells, it makes you want to laugh? Because I think it's what Tim was saying, that it's unexpected. You know, people don't normally yell in everyday life <laughs> right. unless they're, you know, being attacked or something. And he's just yelling half the movie. It's ridiculous. But totally. he has power. He has, like, power over every character he's with. Even in those bloopers I was watching, he was in every single scene. And people were just, like, reacting to him. So there's something he, he's ab he was able to, to conjure up and make so powerful. And, and I think it's not just that performance. It's probably in, you know, Blazing Saddles and all the rest of the movies he's been in. The only other thought that came to mind with, with laughing, because it is kind of like, like a funny little thing that we do. And like, you know, you, you watch TV shows and sometimes if there's not a laugh track, we don't laugh as much because we, we, we sort of follow the cues of others. But, but part of what happens when we laugh is there's this physiological component that sort of, you know, that, that changes our heart rate and blood pressure, yes. which in some way I think can relieve tension that yes. may have been built up. So sometimes even like if you're walking through a haunted house, sometimes people will laugh because they've been scared, but it's because that has created tension that laughter can help relieve. And so again, it's like this automatic response to that. I sometimes laugh at funerals. I don't know what gets into me. I'm, I'm watching something and something strikes me as funny and I can't stop myself. And then if I'm sitting next to Cam, he's going to start laughing and then the two of us will be out of control in an in, in inappropriate situation. But whatever, <laughs> laughter has seemed to have really, um, like we've gone through a tragedy in our life. And I think that laughter, because of, you know, Cam's father was murdered, my husband. And that, you know, in itself was so tragic. But then when every year when we celebrate the anniversary of his death, we celebrate his life by reading like his, his, he would write such funny letters to kids at camp and such inappropriate stuff that was irreverent and really, really funny. And we all like literally like just, we laughed so hard on the day of his death. And it's, and it's, it's the exact opposite mm -hmm. of what you, most people do, I guess, when someone, you know, you know, when you're remembering somebody, it's always a sad yeah. occasion, but for us, it's a laughing. And it, I think it's much I, I agree. I'm so sorry to hear that that happened, but what a wonderful way to honor him in that Thank way. You. That's exactly what he would want to know, but that he, he, he loves to know that, um, that his legacy is one of laughter, that he can continue to, to bring people that sense of joy, even amid that sadness. And yeah, it very likely is a way where that tension is built up that never really goes away. But then there's this mechanism to, I, I think that that's a very healthy coping strategy is to recall something funny as a way to to relieve those those emotions. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, that's what I say on the first day of, of that happiness class. It's not about being happy all the time. Part of psychological health is knowing how to have coping strategies for the inevitable hard parts of life. And it sounds like your family has a, a really effective one um, right there, which I think is wonderful. Well, I think his whole thing was his whole thing was comedy. You know, he was one of those very quiet, like sort of like Igor. You know, you wouldn't expect something from him. And then all of a sudden he would do something really, really quirky and it would just make everyone around him laugh, which is where Cam picks up. Tim, I was curious about what you, when you said that earlier, do you think that you have to actually experience, like, have there been any studies done that show that like deep suffering can ac actually open up 
a more of an ability to experience deep happiness? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. You know, one of the topics that psychologists have really become interested in in recent years is this notion of of resilience, looking at people who have had to endure really terrible things that have happened to them earlier in their lives. Um, and it's, it's well documented. Um, we've known for a long time this idea of post-traumatic stress, the kind of thing that can happen if you lose a loved one in a really tragic way, or, you know, for kids who were bullied really severely in school, or, you know, kids who grew up in abject poverty or something. Um, and when they follow them, what they find is that, yes, there is post-traumatic stress that can occur that the individual always, in a way, always carries with them. But there's been relatively recent research on this idea of post-traumatic growth. It's this idea that, yes, when something traumatic happens, you always carry that psychological trauma with you. But there are strategies that can allow the person to continue to grow and to reflect on what has happened and essentially to extract a sense of meaning and purpose and say, yes, this terrible thing happened to me. But I'm going to engage my social networks and develop a sense of mastery and look back on that and say, hey, with the support of friends and family, I was able to get through this. And that seems to help that person develop a resilient spirit that then positions them to persevere through other challenging things in their life, like making it successfully through really difficult classes in college or navigating um, really challenging things that come up in their relationships or in route to other important goals. And that is that post-traumatic growth, that as a result of this, this really difficult thing that happened, that person is able to reflect on it. Um, and sort of carry that resilient spirit moving forward. And so, yes, there is a lot of evidence that people with the highest life satisfaction as adults often had some difficulty that they had to overcome from that. But it was in the process of overcoming it that they actually came out stronger. And you then can go ahead and have a podcast where you talk about sex with your mother. <laughs> there, hey, there you go. Not well, it's, a, it's a sense That's of freedom, though. It's a, we, we have found it's been a sense of freedom for us to be able to whatever that tragedy did to us, it made us much more comfortable talking about uncomfortable things and not really worrying about the consequences, because I think that's what, you know, we've learned. We have a sense of freedom. And very likely that is one of the things that, that the research has found is that when people go through really difficult times, they have to develop close relationships with other people um, to, to get through that and to cope with it in the short term. But then that closeness stays with them in the long term. Um, there's this idea in um, relationships of rupture and repair that any healthy relationship is going to have conflicts, but it's not a matter of whether there are conflicts. It has everything to do with how those conflicts are resolved. Because when a conflict, you know, when stuff hits the fan, um, it's a matter of do you throw in the towel and say, oh, my gosh, I want nothing to do with you. Or do you say, well, let's take a second here to see how we put the pieces back together. And sometimes it's in that process where you come out stronger, kind of like going to the gym. You know, um, the reason why muscles get stronger when you pump iron is because you are tearing the the muscle fiber. But it is in the process of the muscle fiber healing itself that the muscle actually gets bigger. And it's the same thing when there's conflict or trauma. It's in the process of the healing that can, if it's done correctly, can position the person um, to even be better on a psychological level moving forward. Powerful stuff and a lot of beautiful stuff there. I, I really also wanted to add in about laughter that I think it probably on a neurological level or a chemical level is really able to shift your brain pattern or your, your you know, thought patterns, your way of thinking. I mean, that's for me one of the main reasons I'm so obsessed with comedy is because I'll, I'll be stuck mentally, you know, just frustrated or, or stressed out or maybe a little depressed about something. But as soon as I 
laugh as soon as I experience something funny. It's I I feel like I'm completely reset. There's just like a total fresh start that can occur, which is like one of the most miraculous things in the world. It totally is. We we do the, a lot of laughing right before our podcast. Sometimes we'll mm -hmm. just sit there and look at each other and start laughing for like two or three minutes. It's almost like you get a high off of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It, there's evidence that that laughter can boost the immune system response in our bodies, wow. um, and it also activates other positive emotions. You know, when you're feeling good about one thing, that activates memories of other positive things and kind of sets the the tone and the dynamic of whatever you're about to head into. That's unreal. Um, okay, sorry, we're, I know we're running low on time. I have a few uh, crazy brain things I wanted to get your, your thoughts on, if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay, so I am concerned that as a species, I don't know how you guys feel about this, that we are getting dumber. And like, I don't know, just not as, uh, I don't know if it's a brain cell thing. I don't know what's going on here, but I tried to do some research and I, I saw that since the Victorian era, that the average IQ has gone down 1.6 points per decade. Oh, wow. So I don't know if you know anything about that or what we can do about it. I know that for sure our attention spans have gotten shorter. Uh, one of the things I read was that our attention span is now literally less than the average goldfish who has a nine second attention span and ours have become eight. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it's a diet thing. I know that, like I was saying before that I, play, I blame it on TikTok videos. <laughs> TikTok is to blame. My mother is, she is obsessed with TikTok. I am, I become I, obsessed and it's literally, you're watching it for like less than five or six seconds. So, um, it's funny cause actually just last night I had a friend over, he looked at my face. I can't, I can't believe you're not on TikTok, And he literally downloaded it to my phone. So now maybe I'll jump on and maybe my attention span. Will be like, oh oh yeah. Cool. Just follow us. Oh man, Tim, you're about to get much dumber. <laughs> well, so Tim, I, I have Tim to... you're going to have to, you're going to have to go to sex talk with my mom on TikTok. You're going to see some funny <laughs> oh, shit. Is that your channel? Okay. I'll, I'll start to follow that and see, um, because oh yeah, that seems like a risky thing to type into a Google search. By the way, who knows <laughs> if it's for? I'll, I'll trust your recommendation and see see what there is. So I, I have seen that research, and um, a lot of researchers have been looking specifically at our attention spans. And there's no question now whether it's actually less than a, that of a goldfish. That I think might be some misinterpretations of, of the science, but definitely it's been getting shorter. And it's because you can think about attention being like any other muscle. And the way that a muscle is built and maintained is by exercising it. So back to our gym example, the reason why your muscles get bigger when you go to the gym is because you're working them out. If you stop going to the gym or you otherwise stop engaging in physical activity, those muscles get smaller. Use it or lose it. You can think about attention and attention span being exactly the same thing that if you're not in a situation or your day-to-day -day life is structured in a way where you're not being forced to maintain your attention for extended periods of time, or if you have a device in your pocket that you can easily turn to every single time you get bored and the temptation to break your attention span from reading a book or listening to what the professor is saying or whatever else, as long as that is always available, then you, again, you're not exercising that extended attention that you should be holding on to one thing. And that very I am is explaining fucked. that. Whoa. I am so fucked. <laughs> I think we're Every, all fucked. Well, <laughs> no, Cam, Cam, Cam always gets on my case about me not being able to, you know, pay attention because I'm all over the place with my phone. And this is very, I, I'm fucked. Eh? Right, Cam? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's accurate. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think. I, so, the, the, if, if, if we're serious about regaining our attention span, there's actually a huge amount of research um, on this. Uh, and it, there's a chapter oh, no. in the book about it on meditation. There's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, what is it? I do meditate. I do. Um, oh, and is, is it still difficult to maintain attention? Um, when I meditate, my brain does go off into a lot of different tangents while I'm meditating, and it's very difficult to pull it in. Well, and, and that's okay. But I do. But but that's the most important characteristic of meditation, and that's a lot of the misconceptions that people have about it, is they think, well, I can't meditate because my mind goes off in all those directions. Exactly. It's supposed to. That's what the mind does. But it's that bringing it back in that you mentioned that is ultimately the muscle that you are strengthening. Every time you meditate and your mind starts thinking about something else, it's the act of acknowledging that there's a thought that is distracting, that's not useful right now, and then bringing your attention back to the focus of your breathing or whatever is the focus of your meditation. The act of bringing it back is the thing that gets stronger. And if it's stronger during the meditation period, over time, when you sit down to write a paper or to read a book or whatever, and then your mind starts going off in all these directions, it is now well-practiced at identifying, wait a second, that thought is not useful for me right now. I'm going to bring my attention back. I know that the temptation to go onto Instagram or TikTok right now is there, but I've told myself I'm going to work on this report. I'm going to bring my attention back to that. And that is what has been shown to reverse that trend for many people and to keep attention on the tasks that we have so that we're not just walking around like a bunch of goldfish with attention spans that are only eight seconds. Wow. That's really great advice. I love that. And then speaking of the phone, I was going to ask you how you felt about the phone. I mean, I know you just got TikTok, so I'm sure you're <laughs> you're stoked uh, to dive into that. You're doomed. Yeah, you're, you're completely doomed now. I know oh, you're addicted you already, but... Question. I was looking at a TikTok video. What, what did you want to know about that? <laughs> <laughs> I just, I know, I know, sorry, I know on two different sides of this, like on one hand, there's the attention part of it, which which you're touching on, right? Which is like, everybody's friggin' opening their phone every three seconds and looking at mm -hmm. all these apps. But then, you know, there is the other, like, just uh, chemical electromagnetic frequency side of it. Like, I know there's, like, different proteins in the brain that can be negatively uh, impacted by exposure to those frequencies. So are you any percent freaked out by that? And then also, do you recommend, like, oh, let's leave our phone in a friggin' safe for three hours a day? Right. Yeah, that's not ever happening. <laughs> well, Especially I kinda, at night. I, I can't even that. leave it at night. Yeah, Cam would do it all for three days straight. He does silent meditations and stuff like that. Whereas I, uh, you know, I, I, I have a hard time leaving my phone not attached to my head when I'm sleeping. Well, you know, in, in terms that was a joke. It's on my nightstand. It's not even on my head. It's on my well, nightstand. Hey, it's I, you know, people, they, they fall asleep with it in their hands. So it's the first thing that they, you know, have access to when they when they wake up in the morning. Um, I mean, but when you poll people, whether formally or informally, one of the things a lot of people say is that they do go to bed either with their device in their hand or it's right on their nightstand. And if that works for you, do your thing. But a lot of people... No, I don't even sleep. What are you talking well, about? It doesn't okay, work for me at all. That's exactly what a lot of people report is that they have difficulty falling asleep and remaining asleep. Um, and there's remaining. explanations from that brain science can explain um, why that is such a common experience. The first thing to know about sleep is that it's ultimately a brain activity. Our ability to fall asleep and remain asleep is predicated entirely on the brain's ability to slow down. But if we have a mobile device just inches from our face, one thing that's happened right after that is that the light from those devices is entering the visual system 
which is keeping the brain really alert. So if you were to take any device, regardless of the content of the screen and just have it in front of you, the light is actually suppressing a hormone called melatonin, which is what allows us to feel drowsy and ultimately fall asleep. But if you've got that device there, it's preventing that melatonin from being released, which is why a lot of people... No, I turn it over. I turn the device over so oh, okay. the light is not shown. So that's very effective is to, um, is to make sure that that, that that light is not entering your, your visual system. But the other thing that often happens is that it's not just a random device that's emitting light. It's the content of what people are seeing, that they're checking emails, that yeah. maybe they're, you know, some, some thing happened at work that they're still responding to that's getting them worked up, or they're scrolling through Instagram or Facebook, and they're getting envious about, you know, the job promotion somebody else got or the vacation somebody else is on that, they're, that they didn't get to go on themselves. And that, that anxiety or that angst also is a brain activity. It keeps the brain on high alert. And so those are behaviors that are counterproductive because, again, we want the brain to be slowing down. And yet we're doing these activities that biologically and psychologically are keeping the brain really active. So one thing that I recommend is just pay attention to your environment. I'm not saying that you should get rid of the phone, but maybe, you know, you don't keep the phone right on your nightstand, but you have but you, you put it a little farther away. There's some people who keep their, their phone in their bathroom. So it, it forces them to start their routine, you know, so that they're not wasting like a half hour or a full hour in the morning before they actually start their day. And then they're, they're late for work or for school. Love that. Another good call. Yeah, that's yeah. really smart. Do you do that? Do you, uh, Tim, like keep your phone away from you somewhere? So most of the time, I will admit that I'm not perfect about it, but I will say that I have started to meditate in the morning and in the evening. And so I've got like a little corner in my room where I have like a little pillow against the wall. And so essentially, you know, I do my, and again, I'm not perfect at this, but I do my best that I start my day with 10 minutes of meditation and I put my phone on airplane mode before I go to bed. So the night before I do 20 minutes of, of meditation um, and, and I usually do that right before bed. I put my phone on airplane mode so that nobody can reach me for anything. I leave the phone there on the other side of my bedroom. And then I get under the covers. I'm sort of in a relaxed state from the meditation. And, and I found that I am, have a much easier time falling asleep and I feel like I get better quality sleep. And then again, I wake up first. Well, first thing I do, I go to the bathroom, but then I go over to my meditation corner. I do 10 minutes of meditation. Um, and there's a timer on the phone. It's still on airplane mode. So if I get a text message or email or whatever, that's going to have to wait until after I have started um, my routine. Um, then, then I put my music on, then I really kind of start my day, get dressed, have some breakfast. And only then do I turn it off of airplane mode to check everything. And it, I've noticed a world of difference. Just my day just is started in a very calm place, upbeat with music. Wow. I've had a good breakfast. I, All right. I'm going to try, try it. Try it. Try I love it. that. You know, having that fuel to the brain to sort of kick into gear, you know, your high level activity and then, okay, bring on the text messages or the emails or whatever, the crises, that I'm to respond. <laughs> you know, if there's a happiness crisis in my class or whatever, you know, I'm in a position to respond to it. And again, I'm not perfect about it, but on the days where I'm able to do that, it makes a big difference for the whole day because it set the, the tone for that day. Man, I'm definitely going to try that. I hope you guys do too and tell me what happens. And that goes for the listener as well. Um, I think that would make a huge, huge difference. Try it out. And again, you need one of those pillows. What's that pillow called, Cam, that you have? A Zabutan and a Zafu. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you're not familiar? <laughs> those are uh, like a, the square and circle... Uh, pillows that people tend to sit on while meditating. Oh, okay. What was the name of it one more time? A Zabutan and a Zafu. Oh, okay. Got you. 
Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm going to name my son that. Um, so <laughs> as we're uh, as we're heading out here, uh, obviously people should uh, listen to the Sex Talk with My Mom podcast, and of course, I guess follow you guys on TikTok. Um, is there something else you guys want all, to all social media? If you guys want to uh, tell people about, I think you got it. Wherever you're listening to this, just uh, search for Sex Talk with My Mom, and you will hear uh, a weekly strange conversation between a mom and son about sex <laughs> that sounds great except for twitter where it's where it's sex where what are we sex talk podcast on twitter that's the only one we're not oh great sex talk with my mom i'm gonna tell okay. the students in my happiness class to do that by the way hell yes oh they're gonna they are going to love it we have a lot of college yeah, age sure. um, uh, our audience is a lot of college age kids they they tend to relate either to myself or to cam it's either they may come on thinking they're going to relate to cam but they end up relating to me <laughs> Yeah, as you yeah. can see, he's a lot more, he's got a lot cooler than I am. Well, I think the younger ones relate more to you, actually. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> maybe, yeah. maybe the TikTok thing. <laughs> he's huge on TikTok right now. Um, okay, great. And uh, Dr. Tim Bono is, I mean, obviously people should get your book, Happiness 101. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to promote, your your Price of Riot performance? <laughs> well, if you Google my name, that no, no, I don't need to promote that. I need to do the opposite so people stop associating me with that. Oh, right, right, right. Of course. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's the uh, pretty much all I got. I've been restraining myself during this conversation. I was going to go look up the prices right. <laughs> oh, check it out right but after I, this. But I, I've been withholding. Yeah, you're well, you're going to get a kick out of it because it's it's on YouTube. Because I, as I was spinning the big wheel, I gave a shout out to Washington University where I work, and so public affairs went crazy and wanted that to go viral. And sure enough, <laughs> they got their wish. That's awesome. You just got to put it on TikTok and you'll be all set. <laughs> there we go. I'll try that one. I definitely also just want to reiterate how much I love this movie. And so if you haven't seen this film, please do so immediately. If you have kids, show it to them. Uh, as fast as you can. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, and I had a wonderful time talking with all three of you. I hope we speak again soon. And thanks for being on the show. Thank you. That's too. Yeah, thank you for having us. This has been a blast. I had a lot of fun. Thank yeah, you. we really appreciate it. Of course. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bad Science is hosted and produced by me, Ethan Edinburgh. Our associate producer is Emily Feld. Our editor is Lucas Bollinger. And our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Shout out to EJ and Kate. And the executive producer is Brett Kushner and he's who I miss oh follow us on Instagram at Bad Science Pod if there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast feel free to email at badscienceatseeker.com that's badscienceatseeker.com and please leave us an iTunes review it does help it makes sure people know about the podcast which we really appreciate thanks for listening bye <laughs>